On the Greek island of Lesvos, refugees from the Moria camp gathered in a fish restaurant for lunch. The owners converted their restaurant to a nonprofit to feed refugees from Syria, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. Families sat around tables laughing, chatting, and playing music. In 2020, Moria burned down, leaving 13,000 people without shelter. Before the fire, the camp was ravaged by violence and poverty. But for a few hours a week, refugees could forget their political status, getting lost in the taste and warmth of a delicious meal. This is one of the many stories Yasmin Khan tells about the power of food in her third cookbook, Ripe Figs, Recipes and Stories from Turkey, Greece, and Cyprus. Khan's food writing is more than just recipes. She tells stories about living through conflict and what a good meal can do in the moments when you feel like you have little else. We have a lot to cover after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the What A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Yasmin, it's great to have you. Hi, Jen. It's great to be with you today. So each of your cookbooks focuses on a different region's cuisine. The first is Persian, the second is Palestinian, and the third took you to Greece, Turkey, and Cyprus. What made you want to tell the stories of these places through food? Well, I joke sometimes that like if there's conflict and kebabs, like I'm there. But I um I have a very personal reason to I guess write about a lot of these these places. So as you as you said, you know I'm from the UK, born in London, but my mom's side of the family are from Iran. And my father's side of the family are from Pakistan. And so as a migrant, you know I think. You have a particular attachment to food. And for me, that interest was really piqued by kind of my grandparents in Iran that have this gorgeous rice farm. And, and, you know, when I was a kid, I had this kind of playground of ingredients to, um, I guess, uh, rummage around in with my cousins. Um, And I decided about I guess seven or eight years ago, uh, to kind of shift away from my human rights work, um, working for not-profits, and really use food to tell stories of places like Iran, uh, places like Palestine, where I had a deep connection either through work or my family, and to try and use food as a way of challenging stereotypes of that region and people from there. Why do you think food is, is a good medium for that kind of storytelling? Well, I think one of the beautiful aspects of of food is that there is something so visceral about it. It is something that, you know, like we all can can really uh, feel it in our senses when we have a good meal. We know the smells, the tastes, the sound. It's probably out of all of the kind of cultural traits that um, people attribute to, to a place, you know, whether it's music or literature or art, food is probably the thing that's the most accessible. And, you know, when I was looking at, say, you know, how do you how do you challenge stereotypes of a country like Iran, you know, a place where I know is full of beauty and history and majestic landscapes and, and incredible architecture. But, you know, let's be honest, when you say Iran, most people think of a nuclear deal or ayatollahs or, you know, chador clad women. Um, 
I thought food was such a beautiful entry point to show people about um, about these places because the thing is, when you learn about a country's cuisine, you don't just learn about like a set of ingredients like rice or pomegranates or tahini. What you actually learn about when you learn about a food culture is history, geography, trade relations, you know, probably gender relations. Oh, I just feel quite passionately that the stories that you can find on a plate are just incredibly rich and incredibly inviting. Yasmin, take us inside your family's kitchen when you were growing up and and around your family's table what were those experiences like for you <laughs> they were they were very profound actually i as i said you know i come from a family of farmers and i think you know anyone who who was, has had any of that connection um or, or always can relate to the fact that if you grow if you grow up connected to food being grown you have a particular affinity and and I guess respect for 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 the basic ways in which food is produced so you know my household was was is very gregarious very passionate um and and we kind of like to bring all of that to to the meals we eat whether that's kind of you know, huge meals is what I mainly remember from from being kind of a kid, like parents always having people round, whether it's kind of new migrants to the UK or just friends. And and these big um, kind of sharing meals that I think the Middle East does so well. You know, this isn't a cuisine where you get your food on a plate. This is a, a cuisine where, where an assortment of dishes are spread on a table, whether it's vibrant salads or kind of, you know, saffron-laced stews or beautiful kind of nuts and lentil um, pilafs, like rice pilafs. So it, I just remember it being very vibrant. Mm. We have a saying in my family, we say, food is love and we, we love love. And that that's, <laughs> feels very familiar what you're describing right now. How do you think that experience growing up in, in a family where food was not, it wasn't just about the preparation, it was about the act mm. of gathering. It was about the act of of coming together and inviting others in. How do you think that shapes the way you think about food today? Oh, I think it's absolutely essential to it, you know, and I've really, it's something that I've really noticed in all of my travels as well. You know, I, I used to kind of work for nonprofits and specializing in conflict. Um, so kind of Israel-Palestine was my brief. I worked a lot in Iraq, Afghanistan. And what I really found is, you know, when you're talking to people perhaps about difficult subjects, you know, challenging times in their lives. One way to get through that is to kind of sit down and share a meal. And look, we all know how it feels to have, you know, to take a bite out of that piece of pie that just like transports you back to, you know, your childhood or to, you know, the, you know, enter a room which smells really rich with kind of lots of fresh herbs or spices that, again, you have a memory connected to. And so I started using food um, really in my human rights work as a way of kind of, okay, let's leave that stuff for a minute. Let's connect. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of began to realize that actually I can kind of go broader than that. And of course, now I write books with the aim of helping kind of a wider world connect with some of the things that I feel are important. So your first book, The Saffron Tells, Recipes from the Persian Kitchen, centers on the cuisine of your your own culture. But two of your cookbooks, Zaytun and Ripe Figs, are set in countries and cultures that aren't your own. How did you approach trying to capture what Palestinian cuisine is or what Turkish cuisine is as as an observer? I think that's a really important question um, because 
I was really aware before I started these projects that um, as an outsider, I can in no way kind of go in with some kind of authority and say, hey, I'm going to, I'm the expert on this. You know, I, I really approached all my research much more with the curiosity of a good friend. And that was really my aim, certainly with the, the, the Palestinian cookbook, Zaytun, which is a collection of recipes and stories gathered through my travels, through kind of Israel, the West Bank and Gaza. And um, I, I, would, I would kind of meet kind of Palestinians from all walks of life, you know, whether they're kind of musicians or bakers or farmers and, and would, would kind of say, you know, like I've worked on this topic before and, and as a human rights advocate, but I, I would love to share some of your stories. And, and I very much in the book, therefore, you know, try and put Palestinians in their own words talking about their experience, which I think is just really important when you're like a, a foreigner exploring any culture, isn't it, really? Like, I feel like my job is to hold space and give space to the people that I'm interviewing and I guess use my access and privilege to be able to give them a platform. Can you give us a dish that you feel kind of encapsulates or, or captures Palestinian cooking? And I know that's hard to ask for one dish, but <laughs> something that, that you come back to over and over again. Sure. Well, one of the beauties of Palestinian food is it just the really bursts with like the the kind of the taste, texture, vibrancy of, of food from that area. So it's very, you know, tangy. There's loads of lemon juice. There's loads of astringency. It's very enlivening. Um, and that's one of the, the beautiful things about it. But I think the dish that probably... I always think of when I think of, of Palestine is a dish called moussakan. And it's this gorgeous roast chicken that's marinated in lots of sumac and um, allspice and cumin. And then it's roasted with some kind of onions. And then it's laid out in a big sharing platter over toasted flatbreads. So then you pour like the meat roasting juices over the chicken and the bread so it kind of soaks down into it and it's served like that in a big platter and traditionally that would be a sharing plate that you know you'd all wash your hands and kind of get stuck in and share together and for me that's a real symbolic meal about the real generosity and and sharing nature of Palestinian culture which I think is demonstrated so well at the kitchen table. Yasmin you're making me very very hungry. (laughs) We're talking to cookbook author, travel writer, and human rights campaigner Yasmin Khan. We'll be back with more in a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. We're talking to cookbook author, travel writer, and human rights campaigner Yasmin Khan. Now, Yasmin, you spent time not just cooking alongside the locals in Greece, Turkey, and Cyprus, but also speaking to the migrants there. According to the UN, Turkey currently hosts the largest number of refugees in the world. What were some of the conversations you had? Yeah, it was a very moving experience for me. Um, I'm very humbling, too. I think... 
look, all of us can have, have been aware that for the last few years, you just can't get away from the issue of, of migration and, and refugees. I mean, not least at the moment, you know, we've got about like 5 million Ukrainian refugees, as, as, as you know. Um, and what I wanted to do in the book is, again, just like get beyond the headlines and stereotypes and start kind of talking to people who are actually in the camps about their experiences, kind of finding out about kind of where they'd come from. Um, again, with the aim of, I guess, just showing that, you know, there is really nothing that uh, is any different between people like us and people who end up in a refugee camp. It's often just a case of really bad luck. And it could happen to any one of us too. Um, and actually, you know, I thought that it would kind of be a kind of experience that would be like super depressing or really difficult. And, and of course, it was because kind of what you see there, I mean, it truly blew my mind how horrendously you know people are being held in the camps but what actually I ended up um, being left with was a real feeling of how incredible the human spirit is and how the capacity for resilience and to be the the capacity to find joy and beauty even in the harshest times is is just such an incredible gift that I think so many of the people I spoke to had. Well, part of your goal in writing about Turkey, Greece, and Cyprus in, in one cookbook was to show the the connections between these countries and their cuisines. Culinarily, what did you find uh, tied these countries together? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, these are three countries whose borders have been as, as fluid as uh, as they can be over millennia. And whilst, you know, the, the kind of narrow construct of artificial lines drawn, you know, on a map may divide them, actually, both culturally and culinarily, there are so many more similarities than difference. Uh, it can be seen in so many places, you know, from the, the beautiful art of meze, which I think encapsulates food from that region. You know, meze isn't just a selection of small plates. It's like a way of eating, you know, a leisurely meal stretched out, stretched out over several hours with friends. Um, all three countries absolutely love the grill. Uh, I think the grill is like the heart and soul of, of cooking um, in that part of the world. And it's not just like the typical kind of meat dishes that we think of, like the souvlakis or the kebabs. It's also beautiful, smoky eggplant dishes or, you know, there's this incredible recipe that, like, I, I had, I learned um, while I was there of kind of this char-grilled cabbage, right? Cabbage, mm. like, pretty dud veg, you'd think. But they char-grill it with lots of cumin and cinnamon and then drizzle it with... Um, beautiful kind of chili laced butter. So it's kind of got that kind of creaminess to it and finish it with toasted hazelnuts. So yeah, the grill is king. <laughs> you said you were afraid that talking to people in Gaza about food, a place where 75% of people are food insecure, would minimize the reality of their situation. How did you navigate that challenge? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty aware of that in all of my work, really. And, uh, you know, Gaza has now been under siege for 15 years. It will be 15 years this June with absolutely nothing allowed in or out. Um, 
you know, without being approved by kind of the military, the Israeli military. And I mean, during these 15 years, at times that has meant things like nappies or pencils or concrete hasn't been allowed in. It's been very basic. Um, and as a result, you know, yeah, I mean, um, the country's has been, well, the, the area has been completely de-developed. And as everybody, as I'm sure aware, has also been subject to so many kind of bombings. Um I found some really incredible people to speak to while I was there. And I guess what was really important to me is alongside sharing the beauty of Gazan cuisine with their holy trinity of dill and chili and garlic, um, also to kind of shine life on what life was like there um, by just, I guess, yeah, giving people an insight into the everyday lives of ordinary Gazans. Well, you met a young man named Omar who lives in Gaza while you were writing Zaytun. Would you read a bit of that part of the book for us? Absolutely. Oh, I connected so well with Omar. He absolutely loves, he's a, he's a, uh, a blogger and a journalist and he loves Pakistani food. So we were like, you know, riffing kind of on the kind of how, how we like to cook that. And I was telling him tips of like what my dad makes. Um, but he, spoke to me in the most moving way and was telling me this story of how he was in his grandmother's kitchen um, at the end of a school day and she was making a really kind of delicate stew, one where she needed to like cook the yogurt really slowly with cornflour stirring the whole time. And whilst they were cooking together, unfortunately, a bombing raid began and she, he was really scared and what he noticed was his grandmother like just didn't flinch and she was just like I'm here I'm determined to do this and I'm going to continue and he told me that that was the first time that he realized that fear doesn't have to control us and in Omar's own words if you wouldn't mind I'll, I'll just share them with you he, he kind of said to me this is what he said that this is what he believes makes Gazans so resilient he told me people in Gaza really love life we don't take life for granted, he continued. If there is darkness, we manage to find some light. If there is ugliness, we manage to find some beauty. And if there is despair, we find hope. And sorry, if there is despair, we find or create some hope. It's something that we've developed, like a skill. And this is the image of Gaza that I would like people to know about. It's not just a place of death and destruction and bombs and dying and Hamas and Fatah and Israel and war and borders. We are not just that. We are two million people, just humans like everyone else in the world, waking up to life every day and looking for a chance to be happy. Hmm. And I, I mean, I still remember when he said that to me, actually, I was... Uh, I, I, you have to be really careful as a journalist, you know, not to kind of get overwhelmed in interviews. And I just thought, oh, my God, he's just summed up everything that I want to say about why, you know, humanity matters, why stories matter. And there's this old kind of Jewish proverb that I was told uh, many years ago that is um, your enemy is just a person whose story you haven't heard yet. And for me, Omar's story just sums that up as well, because I think 
he just connects us back to the common humanity, which, which I believe exists. And, you know, I've, I've traveled the world now for both for all for my books, for my human rights work, and I remain convinced that humans, wherever we are in the world, have more to unite us than divide us. Mm. Yeah, something that gets overlooked when we talk about those living through conflict or, or people forced to flee their country is the fact that people love their homes and, and they don't mm. want to have to leave them. Why do you think that's important that, that we don't lose sight of this when we talk about migration and conflict? I think that's such an important point, Jen. I mean, you speak to most migrants, they think this is like a temporary thing. You know, it's like, well, I needed to escape for X, Y, and Z reason, but you know, I'm going to go back because, I mean, nobody wants to be forced out of the home that they love. And I think the reason why it's important to recognize that is because um, not only is it a way of showing compassion, but also, I think it's an important way to understand migration. You know, I was I was motivated to write write figs, not just because I think that the food from the region is delicious or that, you know, the refugee story needs to be unpicked a little bit, but because I'm looking ahead a few decades and I'm looking at the fact that the World Bank is predicting that by 2050, we're going to have 150 million climate refugees and that that is going to force us as a species, whether we like it or not, to really reflect on how we deal with borders and migration in the 21st century. Like, there's no getting away from it that in the next couple of decades, we're going to see huge parts of our planet move. And I just really think we need to be starting to have a conversation about what borders and identity mean in that context. Well, we're hearing from lots of you. Luann emails, food really does equal love. I think most of us feel love is free from any suffering and violence. And this sums up eating a vegan diet. Loving the earth, loving the animals feeds my body and soul as well. Zephyr tweets, I like to use salad Olivier as a perfect example of cultures intersecting and inspiring each other through culinary favorites. It's a salad popular in the south of France, Russia, and Iran, and giving original credit where it's due builds more respect for the underappreciated. Smart Boy tweets, when I want a taste of Chicago here in Arkansas, I order a bottle of mild sauce online and put it on some fried chicken. And Pete tweets, I care where my food comes from. I try to pick organic food and have also moved to a more plant-based diet. I'm an omnivore, but keep changing my food choices over the past 10 years due to environmental concerns. I love toasting pepitas and eating fresh foods. We've got one more here from Tamika who says, for me, it's mangoes. I moved to the D.C. area years ago and can't find mangoes that taste as good as what I grew up eating in Florida. My sweet mother sends them to me every year during mango season. We should note Tamika is a WAMU employee who should feel free to share those mangoes when they come in this year. Yes, but I, I want to get your take on recording recipes, because when I think about the food traditions I grew up with, everyone's mother or father has a slightly different way of doing something that's still considered a traditional dish, right? It's like, oh, your mom's mac and cheese is great, but it's not as good as my mom's mac and cheese. So how do you come down with a sort of a definitive version of a recipe to include in a book? Well, I think that's a very important point. Um, 
One of the the beauties of, of traveling around, you know, cooking in people's home kitchens is there's a lot of time laughing about like what is an authentic way to make something. So you'll be in someone's house and they'll be putting, I don't know, cilantro in something and you'll tell them that you ate something, you, you ate a similar dish, but with, I don't know, parsley somewhere else. And they'll the people will be shocked and they'll be outraged. And I think that I try and approach it all in quite a lighthearted way. And for me, it just demonstrates how actually there ain't, there ain't many dishes that we can say are actually like authentic because food is a bit like a language, you know, like it travels, it shifts slightly based on the town. It has its own little inflections. So what I, what I tend to do is say if I've, you know, cooked with someone and I've thought, well, that's a really great dish. You know, my, the way that I work is I would come back to my home. I would think, okay, so is there a way that I would adapt that to reflect I guess, how I like to cook. You know, I like to kind of, you know, use a few more vegetables than perhaps traditionally are used in that part of the world. Um, uh, so I would maybe like tweak a recipe a bit. And I I guess I'm not like, I don't um, shy away from saying, you know what, this isn't a authentic version of something because I'm not sure there ever really is. I think food is just constantly getting tweaked. And um, I always encourage my my readers to kind of tweak as well. I, I love it when, yeah, people put on their own little sauces and, you know, time in the kitchen should also be about playfulness, I think, as well as trying to nail a, a something being like absolutely perfect. I wonder how you think about the way food changes as people migrate as well, because if you move to a new place, the ingredients that you're accustomed to, the things that make something taste like home, they may not be available. So you've got to find those those substitutes that you can that you can put in. Did you run into that while working on these cookbooks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, you know, of course, I mean, that came up quite a lot um, in ripe figs, especially with kind of some of the recent migrants in the in the camps, where, as you can imagine, there was a lot of scarcity. Uh, what I did find is that, uh, you know, again, you know, people are so flexible in being able to kind of take the best of a local cuisine and mixing it with their own and again I think again it's like kind of like how music builds layers to it I also think that that also makes really good food uh, that kind of mix of influences can sometimes elevate a dish and give you a little surprise I always remember that my mom um, used to lament the fact that when she came to the UK I mean this is like a long time ago like 40 years ago she she couldn't get any eggplants anywhere like they were so expensive if she ever did see them and um and and that was like devastating for her because like where she comes from like an eggplant is like a potato you know like you have it at every meal and so you know she would like be flexible and use like zucchini instead so i think there's a lot of scope for that well as you've said uh, nearly 5 million ukrainians have fled the country since russia invaded ukraine nearly 2 months ago and your last book includes stories of other refugees living not too far from ukraine and you've said your feelings about ukraine are complicated uh, why well, I mean, I think it's impossible not to feel, oh God, like devastated, heartbroken, shocked. I mean, I, there's not enough uh, words to kind of put into mind, like how I feel seeing kind of the images of, of what we've seen happen in Ukraine with the Russian invasion. Um, and like most people around the world, I've been incredibly moved by that and incredibly infuriated um, to see that, you know, this is happening uh, in this century. Um, but I think... It's also fair to say that as a person of color, I've, I've felt 
oh, like kind of slightly choked up a little bit too. Um, because the reality is I, I have been working and, and researching and meeting with so many refugees from places like Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, um, the Tigray region, Sudan. Um, you know, many of their voices are in, in my books. And whilst it's been wonderful and right and proper to see the outpouring of support uh, for Ukrainian refugees, it, it kind of has hurt, I think, to see how communities of color from other countries that have been fleeing war and persecution haven't been welcomed in the same way. And, and not only not been welcomed, have been kind of dragged through, through so many um, horrific kind of media stories. So I think that what I've taken from that is that the response that we've seen to the refugee crisis in Ukraine should really be a model for all of us now, a really positive example of how it's possible to treat migrants with the respect and dignity that they deserve. And I really hope that it will be used that way going forward. That's Yasmin Khan, a cookbook author, travel, travel writer, and human rights campaigner. Her latest book is Ripe Figs, Recipes and Stories from Turkey, Greece, and Cyprus. Yasmin, it's been a pleasure. It's been such a pleasure, Jen. Thank you. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.